0: In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. Both Lent and Advent are wilderness seasons, if you like. We tend to treat them the same, but they're different. I think Lent comes from experience, from people who know what it is to sin and don't know how to find their way to redemption. But Advent comes from innocence, from people who do not know what sin is until they've done it, and then don't know how to find their redemption either. Probably in our lives, we go back and forth from innocence to experience. Either way, when you're in the wilderness, you're in a place that you don't want to be. And both these seasons are about time. They're about how does time pass when you're in a place you don't want to be? How does time pass when you are either hoping to be drawn out of the place to where you want to go or fearing that if you aren't, you're going to be caught up with by something you don't want to encounter in that wilderness. And you're going to encounter it whether you want to or not. You're not going to get out of there soon enough. And what's going on in your heart? in either of the situations. Luther talks of the waiting heart. The core of our being is the heart. And Luther talks of the heart going through what he called tense waiting, tense waiting, a state of expectation, of anxiety, the eagerness which surrounds a person's deepest, darkest, highest, brightest, most secret hope, or fear. You're waiting for the end of what you fear to come or not to come and be done with. You're waiting for the coming of what you hope for to begin. This tense waiting announces to you as it turns toward hope that you are getting to the core of someone's very being. Look for what the creature waits for with hope, Luther said. If I can find out your hope, I have gotten to the core of who you are. That takes some doing, and I often look back over time I've spent with people and realize I haven't got to that place. We sometimes hide our hope and our fear very carefully from ourselves or others. What you are hoping for is that what which you are waiting for, but the reason we hide it is that so often it's something we intuit rather than can claim cognitively, is out of sight over the horizon. Intuition is that faculty that sees around corners, and most of us don't operate that way. But what is seen is not the cause for our hope, usually. Having a little communication with someone by text, text is always rather exacting for me. But I noticed that this person said in her text what exactly her hope was. She wrote, I hope to respect and to understand more and more the human heart. I hope to respect and to understand more and more the human heart. If you looked at what this person did, you might have thought her hope was to do something else. But there it was at its core. I answered back with a little quote from Augustine, that the heart is restless until it finds its hope in God and it made for a wonderful conversation. But so often, I never quite get to that place, nor do I stay to that place in my own being. The wilderness is the place you go when you need to find out what is at the core of your being to get away from all the distractions. And that's where real growth happens again and again in the scriptures. But we need to know what we are waiting for. And what we are waiting for determines what our waiting is like, what we are waiting for, what we expect around the corner, over the hill, beyond the horizon, what we do hope for, but also what we do not hope for, for what we do fear. The one drives us, the other draws us. What's the best and worst that we can expect to get out of life before we get out of here and the life goes out of us then, is the question that both of them raise in our hearts. Now waiting that is driven by fear has one kind of texture, if you like, and I'm going to use some patterns derived from road building, seeing those are the patterns that Isaiah gives us. If you are driven by fear, it's like going into the wilderness. I think of the beautiful highlands of Iceland, which you have to go into in a pretty substantial four-wheel drive, a Defender maybe, 101 if you can get one. I remember going there with our son, Eric. We were caught in some place on F578, which apparently the rental company had told us we were never to go on, and I didn't see it. And I said to Eric, you know, my theology doesn't allow me to believe in trolls, but if there are trolls, I sure as heck know they live right here, and I hope to heck we can find our way out of here without ripping the sidewalls of our tires out on lava. This is a kind of waiting that's driven by fear. And like the roads there, full of ups and downs, hills and valleys, accelerated brake, constantly gearing up and gearing down, constantly fearing that you'll go off the road or fearing who might be coming your way in the oncoming traffic. You live in a space of fight or flight or freeze. Driving that is more drawn than driven, that's more governed by hope, however, is like the Autobahn on a Sunday morning, when you should be in church and everybody else is in church and therefore they're not on the Autobahn and you're the king of the road. It's been built for a hundred miles an hour, I'm obviously not talking about this continent, and the curves are perfectly banked and the surface is smooth as silk. No hills, no valleys, it's all been ironed out. You sit back, breathe easy, and enjoy the ride looking forward to your destination, and loving every moment and every mile. Peace. You are at peace. Two ways of doing the same work, if you like. But one doesn't feel like work. The other very definitely is. Isaiah, then, who knew a thing or two about engineering, about grading, about cut and fill, says to his people, that highway is coming. And when it does, you will have comfort, my people. You will have comfort. He knew that peace was at the heart of God. The patience at the heart of every promise. Things take time, and God gives them time. And there's no need to be always looking over your shoulder or around the corner to what's over the horizon. Peter says, do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years as one day. Well, this is God's time, and we're talking about time. God has all the time in the world, but for us in the world, time is often in very short supply. We spend more of our lives actually gearing down on the highway because everybody else is on the highway crawling along at five miles an hour. And it's not pleasant. Or often, while we're doing that, we're dogged by the sense that time is running out and it's running by. And what is over the horizon either way is irrelevant because we'll never get there. That's how we spend our lives all the more ra- remarkable, then, to go to this. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, is patient toward you. The Greek word makrotumia, as law and Nida put it, is a state of emotional calm in the face of provocation or misfortune, without complaint or irritation. It's not just hanging in there and gritting your teeth. It's a state of absolute calm, unflappability, even peace, as if you brought the highway and the rough track through the wilderness together and you experience them all in the same way. Wherever you are, whatever is after you, wherever you're going, you have this peace. Thus, Bearing that peace, we may be able to countenance some of the other texts we have heard today. I quote this one. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. All these things are thus to be dissolved. Oh, my nerves, as they used to say in Newfoundland. Now, you note that it's not the earth that is burned and dissolved, it's the heavens. It's something I'd never seen. And when you look through these texts, it's not God who's talking about all this, except through the authors. When God speaks, he speaks of patience, of hope. When humans speak, they speak of God's anger. Now, you can obviously work with this with some kind of nuancing. But where I'm going is this. We're governed not just by these outer experiences of the wilderness and our proneness to go onward in hope, but our more likeliness to go on in fear. We're built that way in our bodies as well. We have a nervous system that runs right through the heart. We don't control it. There are two main branches to that nervous system. We'll talk a little bit of neuroscience. I'm already out of my depth. But I think what it says is wonderful. It says the body is built to control and contain what the soul has going for it, too. The nervous system that's called sympathetic is the system we call fight or flight. And it's the driven system. It's driven by fear. The heart is the place, the site in the battleground in which these two systems meet, the nervous system, the sympathetic, and the so-called parathetic, parasympathetic nervous system. And they both motivate and activate the heart to beat. The sympathetic system, which is activated by fear, makes the heart beat in a very regular way. Interestingly, like a lot of our so-called praise songs, 144 beats to the minute, unyielding, unvarying, rigid, mechanical, precise. And yet these are the times when the body and the soul are under the greatest stress. When the proverbial saber-toothed tiger approached our ancestors and we prepared to eat or be eaten, this system activated us for action whereas the parasympathetic system is the system of rest and digest, and it kicks in at the feast afterward for us or for the tiger. In this system, the forces that urge an orchestra of a hundred to play as one or a choir of monks to sing plink chant as if they were one solo voice with elasticity, rubato, pulling and pushing the rhythmic pulse, always varying it, advancing and retreating, giving it the maximum flexibility. This is the glory of Western music, that we have this incredible flexibility in our command of rhythm. And this is apparently the cue for a healthy human heart. A healthy human heart beats with tremendous elasticity, constantly varying the heart rate but when we're more under stress and have to react quickly, the heart beats absolutely rigidly. Well, we can brood over that. But what it says is that we have these two ways of going through life. We don't get to choose them. It's one or the other. We can't do them both at the same time. We speak of the fear of God, And yet God so often speaks of peace, of love, of drawing us to him rather than driving us into his arms. I'm reminded of one of the colleagues we'll encounter for this season wrote by Cramner. It's about scripture, and he writes that our approach to scripture is to be very parasympathetic. Were to go there when we're relaxed and at peace and at rest. Read, mark, learn, he says, and inwardly digest. You need peace to digest. It's to be read devotionally, slowly, deeply, and prayerfully. Only then does it begin slowly to divulge its meaning, its intentions, its purposes for our hearts and lives. And this is how the gospel works into our lives as well. We see in our readings today and next week as well, these two systems coming together in the figures of John the Baptist and Jesus. Two dispensations, if you like, that are coming into collision, or more likely, one that is giving way to the other, as John will say. John, driven entirely by fear says the clock is ticking get your act together you're going to fly right now if you don't repent you're out of this deal altogether this thing is winding down and winding up so get it right or you're left behind this is the movement of the battleground the rat tat tat of the field drum and the trumpets when Jesus comes as he will he brings a different rhythm It's the sound of plucked and drawn strings, lute and harp, viola d'amore and theorbo. It's the move from the outdoor to indoor music, the move from outdoor to indoor voices. People, men and women, not just approaching one another in confrontation, putting one another's egos on the defensive, forcing us to withdraw up those stiff, steep mountainsides into our own strong towers, our kingdoms of solitude by constant challenge and repost, the rhythm of everyday life then and now in which honor and shame are dealt out. But this is the move that be- signals the beginning of the coming in of God's kingdom with peace and with grace. John's of the axe being laid to the root of the trees, the ultimate liquidation sale coming, the end of the beginning, as the old way of seeing God even gripped in fear of imminent judgment for having failed to perfectly obey every jot and tittle of the law transforms itself into that interpersonal gathering that summons to Israel to come out once again and live out her vocation to be a light to the nations, a new living symbol of mercy, an oasis of grace, a beacon of light in a dark world. So how much of it comes down then to time? It's how we live time. In the end that makes the difference. It's not so much about how much time have we got left, but what have we got to do? What are we drawn to do with the time we have left? And what will draw us to do it? When all is put behind us and Jesus draws us into his embrace, surely there is only this. The promise of the one who said, Come unto me, all who are heavy laden, and I will give you rest, rest for your souls. Come, he says, I know you, I always knew you. Your name was always written on my heart, and now you know it. Forget about what you've done and what you haven't done. Even for me, it doesn't matter. What's done is done, and I took care of all of that some time ago up there on the cross. And now I will take care of you, and we will all take care of one another. Amen.